Mark chapter 15. Mark chapter 15. We're not going to look at the whole chapter today. Mark chapter 15, a wonderful passage showing us the person and work of Christ. Well, as I hope you know, Jesus was born during Roman times when Rome ruled the world. And in Roman times, execution of condemned criminals was a public affair, a very public affair. Crucifixion was a part of that public affair. They made a big deal out of it, and they purposely made a big deal out of crucifixion and the whole trial and everything that went before it. But this horrible means of execution served two purposes. Well, according to historians, number one, it punished the criminal by prolonging the pain for as long as possible. Some of the Caesars believed that a quick execution was, was freedom. And so they didn't like quick executions. They, the victim could suffer on crosses for days upon days, and they would slowly die eventually from asphyxiation from muscle fatigue. Number two, the public exposure served also as a warning and a deterrent to other people who might want to come up and butt their heads against Roman power. And so the victim was paraded through the streets as Jesus was through the city of Jerusalem, and they would, they would usually have to carry a sign that would announce the crime that they were convicted for, and, and then they would hang on a cross, and the Romans would strategically place these crosses in, in well, in well-traveled roads. Just as Jesus was just out the city gates of Jerusalem, people coming to and from for Passover would have seen Jesus hanging on a cross. So his torment would then strike fear into the hearts of those who happened to pass by. And this is what happened to Jesus. Let's um, see what happened in this passage here. As I said, we're not going to read the whole chapter. Uh, we only have time to look at a portion of this wonderful gospel. But uh, first of all, we see in this passage here that Jesus was taken to a place called Golgotha. Let's start reading in Mark chapter 15, verse 21. Mark 15, verse 21. Then they compelled a certain man, that is, the Romans compelled this man, Simon a Cyrenian, the father of Alexander and Rufus, as he was coming out of the country and passing by. Anyway, they compelled him to bear his cross, that's Jesus' cross. Verse 22, and they brought him to the place, Golgotha, which is translated place of a skull. Then they gave him wine mingled with myrrh to drink, but he did not take it. And when they crucified him, they divided his garments, casting lots for them to determine what every man should take. Now it was the third hour. By the way, the hour, let me just point this out in case you don't know this. The hour for a Jew started at 6 a.m. Okay, So if you start at 6 a.m. and go three hours, it was 9 a.m. So it was 9 a.m., and they crucified him. And the inscription of his accusation was written above, the king of the Jews. 
With him they also crucified two robbers, one on his right and the other on his left. We'll stop there for now. It's a long passage. Let me just explain a few things from these short verses here. Normally, a condemned man carried the crossbeam. Now, uh, I've seen enough religious art and pictures, and, and I haven't watched the movies, but I understand in, in sometimes in the movies they'll, you'll see the guy representing Jesus, and in the <coughs> also in the religious art, Jesus is carrying this. He's not just carrying the crossbeam. He's carrying the whole thing. That, by the way, that's probably not what happened. Uh, probably what, what actually happened is, is Jesus just carried the crossbeam, the part where his hands would have been nailed to. And he would have been forced to have carried it to the, his place of crucifixion there at Golgotha where it was fastened to the vertical beam. Vertical, sorry. And Mark doesn't tell why Jesus does not carry his own cross, <laughs> but it's probably kind of easy for us to guess when you think, when you read the other Gospels, you get a pretty good idea why. Uh, he's either too weak or he's too slow from the severe the beating and the lashing that he would have received. He's lost a lot of blood and he was weak. And so the soldiers, they forced an, an innocent onlooker by the name of Simon here to carry that crossbar to Golgotha. So who is Simon? Why would the Bible mention this onlooker? Well, the Bible says that Simon was passing by just as Jesus was passing by. The Bible says here that he had come from the country and he was on his way into the city of Jerusalem. He's just a, an innocent bystander, if you will. And so Simon's coming into the city and he's, he's walking in Jerusalem. He meets, he meets these Roman guards and, and they uh, conscript him, if you will, to do what Jesus wasn't able to do, which was to carry the crossbow. Mark identifies Simon here as from Cyrene, by the way, which is in North Africa. And also, interesting, it identifies his sons, Rufus and Alexander. Most likely, if you wonder why, why is his name even mentioned, why are his, his sons mentioned? I mean, you think that's insignificant. Well, it's probably because people in the church knew who Simon was and knew who Rufus and Alexander were. Many Bible scholars believe that that uh, Simon became a Christian, and maybe even his sons were became Christians as well. And, and it's interesting to note that Simon, Rufus, and Alexander are uh, different, come from different languages, uh, Hebrew, Latin, and Greek. So they're Hebrew, Latin, and Greek names, which is really a, a wonderful picture of the gospel. It's, it's hinting here, if you will, at the universality of the, the gospel that spreads to all nations, tongues, and tribes, and people groups. It reaches across cultures to the ends of the earth, just as it did with Simon and his children. I'll give you a picture of, of uh, Golgotha here, or what, what many people think is Golgotha anyway. The Bible says the, the parade, if, if you want to call it that, ended at a place called Golgotha. That's what you see here, and it, Mark interprets what that means for his Greek-speaking readers here as the place of the skull. Now, why was it called the place of the skull? Well, uh, there, there's, there's different, uh, different ideas out there why it was called the place of the skull. Uh, but let me just mention, uh, if, if you're more familiar with the term Calvary, in fact, uh, some of us have gone to churches called Calvary, had the name Calvary. 
and for good reason, because the, the, the term Calvary derives from the Latin word Calvaria, which means skull, kind of another name for Golgotha. But where does the name Golgotha come from? Well, the name Golgotha could refer to the shape of the rock that resembled a skull. If you look at that picture there, you might, well, if you have a vivid imagination, you might be able to picture a skull in, in the rocks there. Or uh, maybe it was possibly because there was discovery of a skull or skulls in this place, or even the fact that it was the location for Roman executions. I'll give you another picture of Calvary here by the city. Uh, this is one of the things I love about the ESV study Bible. They've got great, great graphic art in it, but uh, hard to see. But in the bottom middle there, you'll see Golgotha or Calvary. Uh, in, in Jesus' time, it was very close to the city gates. It was right next to the road, you can see there. And it's, it's interesting to note that Mark doesn't describe the details of Jesus' crucifixion. If you like all that gory kind of stuff, well, Mark's not the book for you to read, because Mark doesn't give you all the gory details. Nearly everybody, and I think probably one of the reasons why Mark doesn't do that is because nearly everybody in Roman times in the ancient world, knew what crucifixion was like. They had seen a lot of people crucified. They knew exactly what it was like. And it, and it really served no purpose for Mark to sketch the horrors of this kind of execution. However, I'll remind you that all scripture is inspired and is profitable. And, and Mark, Mark gives you the, just the details that, that his readers needed to know. And he, isola he isolates some, some great theological truths here that, that we need to think about, and we're going to think about some of these here. Now, if you look at verse 23, <coughs> verse 23 mentions uh, a, a pronoun by they. <laughs> it just says, then they gave him wine mingled with myrrh to drink. <coughs> well, who are the they? Who are the they? Uh, you have a lot of pronouns. It gets confusing. What is pronouns modify nouns which noun is it modifying here well presumably these people are the same ones in the preceding verse who are who are the ones who led jesus to golgotha or calvary now notice they it says here they offered jesus wine which had uh, you say well why did they do that well <coughs> wine had this mild numbing effect but the bible says that jesus didn't take it why didn't jesus take the wine why didn't he for, for some reason, he didn't take it. Well, there's, there's many guesses. I'll give you a few ideas. But one can guess why Jesus rejected the offer of the wine. Maybe, uh, maybe it's because uh, Jesus had made a vow that he wasn't going to, to drink of the fruit of the vine until he'd drink it again in the kingdom of God. He made a similar statement to that in chapter 14. Maybe that's one of the reasons. Or maybe Jesus just remained to be fully conscious. He didn't. He didn't want to have that numbing effect. He wanted uh, to, to bear the full brunt of God's wrath, if you will. He wasn't, he wasn't looking for the easy way out, like maybe we would have. But whatever the reason is, he didn't do it. Now, why did the soldiers divide Jesus' garments? And why is it even mentioned here? Well, uh, let me just say this, that first of all, it was customary for executioners, particularly in this time, to, to share, if you will, the personal belongings of the one who was being executed. <laughs> you know, it was kind of like finders, keepers, losers, weepers, kind of a, uh, a philosophy they had. And so they, 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 they cast lots to determine, well, who's going to get it? And 
And this detail would have been a minor detail and really probably an insignificant one if it wasn't for the fact that it's actually mentioned in Psalm chapter 22. Many of us are familiar with chapter 23, the great Lord is my shepherd passage. But Psalm 22 is also talking about the good shepherd, Jesus Christ. And it, and it even mentions, I'll give you the, the verse here. It says, uh, verse 18, they divided my garments among them and for my clothing they cast lots. I'll remind you, that verse was written hundreds of years before Christ was ever on this earth. That is a prophecy of what happened to Jesus Christ. And so we see scripture being fulfilled. Jesus knew that he was fulfilling scripture, and he could see the, the guards, the, the Roman soldiers, fulfilling scripture before his very eyes. Now, why is this cross reference to Psalm 22 here? What, and why is it there, and, and why is it even important? Why is it mentioned in Mark? Well, I think the link helps us to see that this moment of absolute humiliation for Jesus Christ is actually God's will. It's God's will. That's an amazing thought. You, you just dwell upon that today because what happened to Jesus was not an accident. It was God's will to, as Isaiah 53 said, to crush his son. Even down to minute details of the garments, you know, de deciding who's getting what of Jesus' garments. Even down to those de deal details was prophesied ahead of time, and God was fulfilling his purposes. So what else happened to Jesus? Well, number two, uh, you'll see up there, <clears throat> that Jesus was mocked, insulted, ridiculed, abused, and scorned. As if it wasn't bad enough for him to be executed, uh, you know, they, they got to verbally lash out with their tongues. Look at verse 28. Look at verse 28. Uh, Mark chapter 15, verse 28. So the scripture was fulfilled which says, and he was numbered with the transgressors. And those who passed by blasphemed him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha! You who destroy the temple and build it in three days... Save yourself and come down from the cross. Likewise, the chief priests also, mocking among themselves what the scribes said, he saved others. Himself he cannot save. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, descend now from the cross that we may see and believe. Even those who were crucified with him reviled him. And when the sixth hour, by the way, that's noon, when noon, or the sixth hour, had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. That was 3 p.m. And we'll stop there for now. You can see there in that section, clearly all the ridicule and the scorn and the mocking that's, that's going on. Now, the victim of crucifixion usually became the, the brunt or the, the butt of horrific abuse. And for some perverse reason, certain people just enjoy witnessing the, the torture and, and the abuse of others, and they enjoy adding to the abuse, and that's what happened here. And it's interesting to note that individuals from all walks of life were heaping insults on Jesus. For example, you have, you have the guys who are nailed on the crosses next to Jesus. <laughs> the low-life criminals next to Jesus, they're insulting Jesus. And then you even have the high priest. They're, they're insulting and abusing Jesus. And so you got people from all walks of life, including the soldiers, 
who were abusing and ridiculing and mocking and scorning Jesus. If you look at verse 29, you'll, you'll see the word there, at least in the new KGV, the, the, the wagging of their heads. The wagging of the heads was, was, was just a form of abuse and, and scorn and mockery. You know, it's, it's kind of like, uh, you know, we, we do it sometimes, don't we? We, we see something happen and, and, and we see somebody making a fool of themselves or somebody do something dumb or we don't like what somebody did and we, and we, we even shake our heads. And like, right? That's what they're doing. And then you even see the word there, aha! By the way, aha is, is a, a form of contempt. <laughs> it was a form of contempt. They're, it's just a form of making mockery of Jesus. And so as the mockers see Jesus hanging helplessly on the cross, he looks defeated. He looks defeated. And his enemies think they've won, but this scene is just full of irony. You've got to love the irony in this scene because why would I say that? Well, the, the, the scoffers, as they're spewing out the ridicule out of their mouths, and they're doing it from a, really a blind point of view, they're unknowingly proclaiming the truth about Jesus here. Notice I said they're unknowingly proclaiming the truth about Jesus. In fact, here's what, what, uh, what one commentator said. Quote, it's on the screen here. Their mockery, however, testifies to a truth beyond their range of vision. Jesus' death does destroy the temple made with hands and builds a new one not made with hands. This new temple has no ties to any geographical location. It consists of a new community of worshipers who believe that in his death, Jesus bore the sins of a jeering and murderous world and that God vindicated him by raising him from the dead. His death abolishes the need for any more temple sacrifices and God will soon build a temple without walls through Jesus' resurrection, end quote. <laughs> you just get a picture there of how their, their blind words that they're spewing out of their mouth are, are, are saying much more than they even realize. Now, if you look at verse 33, the Bible says that darkness covered the land for three hours. And in fact, it did it right in the middle of the day when, when the sun is right up, supposed to be above and it's supposed to be bright from noon till three. And, and we have to ask the question, well, is this significant? And if it is significant, what is the significance of darkness in the middle of the day? Well, actually, I think there is some significance, and I'll give you some views on what, what, what the darkness here might be portraying for us. And, and <clears throat> I'll remind you, it's, it's, it's taking place at a crucial moment as Jesus is hanging on the cross. So it's a crucial moment, and I think it, it, can, uh, it can signify a number of things, at least four things that I, I read in various places. Number one, darkness was associated with mourning. Darkness was associated with mourning, which is, which is why even today, we, when we go to a funeral, many of us wear black, right? Number two, darkness was also associated with the death of great men. It was common when, when kings would die, there would be darkness. Number three, darkness was a sign of God's judgment. And number four, Jesus even himself uh, said that, that darkness would announce the great day of the Lord. You can even read about it in the book of Amos. So maybe, as you can see there from those four reasons, there probably is some great significance in 
the fact that, that God the Father brings this darkness over his son while he is dying on the cross. Number three, what else happens here in this passage? Number three, Jesus spoke from the cross. Jesus spoke from the cross. Let's look at these verses starting in verse 34. Look at Jesus' words from the cross. Verse 34, and at the ninth hour, that's 3 p.m., Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, and I don't know how you say it, okay, so forgive me if you know, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which is translated, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Some of those who stood by when they heard that said, look, he is calling for Elijah. Then someone ran and filled a sponge full of sour wine, put it on a reed, and offered it to him to drink, saying, Let him alone. Let us see if Elijah will come down or come to take him down. And Jesus cried out with a loud voice and breathed his last. Let's stop there. You see here at, at 3 p.m. that Jesus cried out from the cross with this great voice. By the way, it's interesting when you read uh, the Gospel of Mark here, if you have a red-letter edition, these are the last words of Jesus in this Gospel account. And so, these are the last words He speaks in this Gospel, and, and they have great significance. And, and really, if you think about it, they're, they're perplexing in a way. They're puzzling and, and we're, we're not quite sure what's going on here. I've thought about these words all week, uh, trying to think, why did Jesus say this? Well, Jesus' words have even divided interpreters of the Bible. And some interpreters of the Bible ask the question, should we consider only the written words, which, by the way, come from Psalm 22, verse 1, or should we weigh these words that Jesus speaks here against the entire psalm? Which, by the way, Psalm 22 is a lament, uh, by the way, that also ends with a triumphant hope of vindication. So should you take these words in the context of the entire Psalm 22? You Please don't look at it now. You can go back. I suggest you read it this afternoon. But the reality is you and I may never fully understand the mystery behind Jesus' cry from the cross here. But we can certainly think of the options. All right, so, so just stay with me. Let's think of a couple options. I've got, I've got two options, all right? And they, and they very well both may be right, okay? Uh, but, but at least one of them is going to be right, if not both of them. Number one, here's the first option to think about. Jesus drank the bitter cup of God's wrath on the cross, and he took our place. So when Jesus cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He is... He is drinking the bitter cup of God's wrath. He is absorbing God's wrath on the cross, which is true. He did that. That's why 1 John mentions that he is our propitiation. So he's absorbing this wrath. He, he is taking our place, which is why many confessions of the faith mention the substitutionary atonement of Christ. He, he substituted in our place. I, you see, I deserve to die on the cross. You deserved to die on the cross. But Jesus took your place. And so in that fearful hour, Jesus bore in his own consciousness the, the penalty, and he's crying out as he is being abandoned by his heavenly Father. Now that's an amazing thought. You th just think about it, because 
the Trinity has always existed. You have God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, always existed in perfect harmony and fellowship. They have never been separated up to this point. And, and by the way, for all eternity, the rest of eternity, they will always be in perfect union, harmony, and fellowship again. But, but at this point, Jesus Christ is feeling uh, the, his, his holy heavenly Father turning his back on him. So that's one option. The second option. What, 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 what's going on in Jesus' words and his cry from the cross here? Well, the second option is that some interpreters emphasize that Jesus' last words were not formed by Jesus but by the psalmist in Psalm chapter 22. Now hang with me, you may not understand what's going on there, but a more probable answer is that Jesus was, of course, familiar with the Old Testament. In fact, you remember, you read about Jesus, Jesus knew the Old Testament better than the rabbis, even at age 12. <laughs> you know, he, he's quoting the Old Testament, and he's, he's teaching the rabbis. He knew it well. He knew Psalm 22. He probably had the whole thing memorized. And so Jesus' familiarity with Scripture led him to that particular lament, which, of course, he knew was all about him. And I find it probable that Jesus, who lived out the Scriptures, who knew the Scriptures, who believed the Scriptures, who even believed he was fulfilling Psalm 22 at that very moment, would turn to Psalm 22 to find comfort. So therefore... Jesus did not simply let out this uh, an, an anguish cry of pain, but he's deliberately quoting Psalm chapter 22 when he says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, notice verse 37. Okay, as I said, both of those, those options are probably true. I, it's fairly safe to say, but uh, certainly the first one would be true. But in verse 37, Jesus lets out this great voice, as it says, and he breathed his last. Now, this is another way of, of just simply saying he died. When it says he breathed his last, as you know, when you stop breathing, you, you're dead. And so this loud cry is unusual. It's very unusual, since victims who were hanging on a cross would usually be there for several days. Jesus was only there for a couple hours. And, and you remember... Pilate was surprised when Joseph of Arimathea, which we'll read about in just a moment, Joseph of Arimathea comes to Pilate, and Pilate's like, what? He's dead already? Uh, I need to get some confirmation from the centurion. So he calls for the centurion. Is Jesus already dead? Yes, he's already dead. And so this was uh, very unusual for, uh, for a victim of crucifixion to be already dead, because normally they would die from the exhaustion and, and, and the lack of breath, and they would die from the asphyxiation. One commentator suggests here in this verse that it expresses superhuman strength in regards to his, his loud uh, voice, if you will, coming from the cross, and, and caused the events that were to follow. You say, what, what events followed? Well, let's read about it. What happens next? Well, you'll see on the screen here that what happens next is simply that the curtain of the temple was torn in two. And the other interesting thing that happens in the next two verses is that, is that the centurion sees Jesus on the cross, what, what happens to him, and then he makes this very surprising confession. Look at verse 38. Look at verse 38. Because, as, as I said, some commentators think verses 38 and 39 happen as a result of 
the loud voice coming from Jesus. Look at verse 38. Then the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. So when the centurion, who stood opposite him, saw that he cried out like this and breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the Son of God. Hmm. Let's think about this. These two interesting events that took place here. First of all, we'll look at the curtain of the, the temple being torn in two from top to bottom. I've given you a picture of, of the temple veil. One man's opinion of how it looked. But it's interesting here that Mark specifically says that the temple veil ripped from top to bottom when Jesus died. Now, th- that's, that's an interesting way to put it because this was a very tall veil. And it was a very thick veil. It, it was several centimeters thick. It wasn't like your little, your little thin curtains that you have hanging on your walls at home. Okay, We're talking about something very thick. No man, even several, uh, you know, group of men, could not have ripped that veil in two. Now, why is this detail mentioned? That, well, is it important? Well, all, all things in Scripture are important, but this one is, is incredibly significant because it's actually mentioned in other portions of your Bible. For example, go look at the cross-references in Hebrew, in, in the book of Hebrews. But the, the veil of the curtain, if you're not familiar with what's going on here, coming from the Old Testament, God told the Israelites to build this and put this thing together. The, originally, it was the, the tabernacle in the Old Testament. And I've given you a picture here. Uh, that's actually, again, I love the ESV study Bible. It's, it's, a, it's a cutaway, if you will, of Solomon's temple. And you can see the, the different groups there. You have the, the holy place and the holy of holies, which the high priest was only entered to, allowed to enter in once a year. But that's, that's the Solomon's temple, how it probably looked. And, and this, this, this curtain, this huge massive curtain, divided the holy of holies from the other place where the priests were allowed. And so a Jewish historian by the name of uh, Josephus, he described this veil. Remember, Josephus lived around the time of Christ. He describes this veil as 25 meters high. It was a massive veil, and uh, it it was uh, of Babylonian tapestry with embroidery of blue and fine linen. He also said it it had scarlet and purple, and he also mentioned it was made with marvelous skill. It was an amazing thing. And so the torn curtain unveils something for us. And you'll see another picture here. Uh, that's the, the tent, the tabernacle that God told the Israelites to build uh, when they were out in the wilderness before they got to the promised land. And again, it's a cutaway, okay? Just imagine somebody cutting the thing in half. That's so you could see the inside of it. But when the veil ripped, something was destroyed. But not only was something destroyed, something was also that that was previously hidden away came into the open for everyone to see. And I'm not just referring to the Ark of the Covenant. Okay, So if you're not sure what I'm talking about, let's get specific here for a moment and just think about several views here of what's going on. Number one, the torn veil symbolizes a new revelation. Again, I gave you the uh, the picture of Solomon's temple. No, not that one. Go back. Go back, Joe. The, there, Solomon's temple. And then even in the, the, the tabernacle tent here, 
the veil that, that shielded the holiest part of the temple where God's glory resided was, was torn away. Remember, only one man one time a year was allowed in there. <laughs> and even when he went in, they purposely tied a rope around his ankles so if God killed him, they could drag him out so he wasn't stuck in there a year. Because nobody else could go in there. That's how serious that place was. <laughs> and so this veil of secrecy was, was lifted and all could see the face of God and the love of God in Jesus' death. There's great significance in this. In, in fact, uh, if you don't understand it, I'll, I'll, I'll use a funny picture here. Maybe you could... Uh, one of my favorite movies growing up was The Wizard of Oz. And, and toward the end of the, the movie, The Wizard of Oz, if you know the story of Wizard of Oz, there's a humorous story where um, you, you got the, the, the wizard who's behind the curtain. He's hiding behind the curtain, and he, he's really scaring, you know, the, the Tin Man, the Lion, Dorothy, and... Uh, <coughs> They're scared to death, and he's behind the curtain doing all his, you know, pulling his levers and pushing buttons and, you know, scaring them. And then the little dog goes over and finds that it's, you know, he's not so scary after all. He's just a, he's just a man behind the curtain pulling levers. <laughs> so this feared wizard, once the curtain was revealed and, and, and brought away, he, he, he's revealed as just a powerless fraud. So the wizard's power was nothing but just smoke and mirrors. And that's, that's an interesting way to, uh, as we come to this passage here, by contrast, in total contrast to that, when Jesus died on the cross, the curtain wasn't just drawn aside by a little dog. It, it ripped in two from top to bonded, and it revealed an all-powerful God. <laughs> it revealed an all-powerful God, not just a powerful little man. Number two, a second view is that the torn veil lets something out. It, it reveals something. It lets something out. And the reality is that God's glory cannot be confined to a little space like the Holy of Holies. It certainly can't be confined to a national shrine of stone. Instead, what we see going on here is that God's glory flooded the whole world. God's glory can be seen, of course, in creation. One of the ways that he reveals himself and number three, the third view says that the tearing of the veil signifies that the barrier between God and mankind has been torn away. And that's certainly true. You can read about it in the book of Hebrews. Chapter 6 and chapter 10 are two of my favorite examples. Shows how, how we, 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 we're no longer separated. We don't need a, a, a human priest to go between us and God anymore because Jesus Christ is our great high priest. And so it reveals the reconciliation that is now available between God and mankind. <laughs> All Christians are now priests, the Bible says, and have direct access to God. And so the, the ripping of that veil in two is signifying this, this beautiful truth that you and I can enjoy now. Well, the fourth view is, is given by this commentator. I'll just read it to you. It's on the screen here. The torn veil marks the end of the old order. The veil is not open, but ripped in two from top to bottom, indicating its destruction. Tearing from top to bottom may picture God unleashing judgment from heaven and represents divine condemnation of the temple cultists. The temple and its sacrificial system are now redundant and unnecessary. Oh, I love it. You and I don't have to walk in today. We don't have to go find the best little lamb in our flock today. 
and, and cut the throat of that lamb to cover our sins. Because the lamb of God came to do that. He finished it for us. And so the confe- let's look at the confession of the, uh, the centurion here. Now remember, this guy is the leader of the death squad. He's the leader of the death squad. That's, where, that's what centurions were. They were, they were the captains of, of, a, of a group within the Roman army. And this confession that he makes really comes as a surprise. I've given you a picture of a, of a centurion here. Now, a centurion, I'll remind you if you're not familiar, would have been a, a battle-hardened soldier and campaigner. He would have been promoted through the ranks because, well, number one, he lived through the campaigns, and number two, he would have shown some, some leadership ability. He would have shown obedience to Caesar to the Roman Empire. And so this guy has no reason whatsoever to be sympathetic toward Jesus. No reason whatsoever. However, it's interesting that Mark tells us here that he saw how Jesus dies. He's, he's right there. He's, he's at the, by the feet of Jesus. He sees that Jesus dies this powerless death, but with a very powerful cry. And after he sees that, he makes this wonderful confession. The centurion confessed here that Jesus was the Son of God. In other words, he's confessing that that man is the Messiah and he is God. Now that's an interesting confession to make coming from a Roman soldier, isn't it? What does that mean, though? (laughs) Well, the confession means that Jesus' full identity as deity is something that's inseparably linked to his death. It's inseparably linked to his death. Now what happens next? What happens next? Well, Jesus' body was buried. <laughs> We're getting him ready for the resurrection. Look at verse 40. Look at verse 40. Verse 40. There were also women looking on from afar, among whom were Mary Magdalene, <coughs> Mary the mother of James, the less, and of Joseph, and Salome who also followed him and ministered to him when he was in Galilee, and many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. Now when evening had come, because it was the preparation day, that is the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a prominent council member, who was himself waiting for the kingdom of God, coming and taking courage, went into Pilate, and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate marveled that he was already dead, and summoning the centurion, he asked him if he had been dead for some time. So when he found out from the centurion, he granted the body to Joseph. Then he brought fine linen, took him down, and wrapped him in the linen. And he laid him in a tomb which had been hewn out of the rock, and rolled a stone against the door of the tomb. And Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, observed where he was laid. Now, let me just point out to you, all of those details that you see there are significant. They are important. God puts those details there for a reason. So let's let's just think about some of these things for a moment. Number one, we have a group of women here. That's significant in and of itself because uh, I'll remind you, during this time, women were considered chattels property and men could do with them whatever they wanted to including kill them Uh, 
th- this was a, a day and age Romans, uh, <coughs> sadly, Women weren't treated with dignity and honor the way they should be, as God shows us in Scripture how women should be. So the fact that even women are even mentioned in the Bible is significant. For one thing, it shows that God loves women. (laughs) He holds them in great honor and respect. And, of course, so should we. But we have these aren't just women. They're grieving women, a a group of grieving women who, uh, the Bible says, they followed Jesus all the way from Galilee. Remember, Jesus spent most of his ministry up in Galilee, the northern part of Israel. And they're looking on here at the execution of Jesus, but they're not right next to the cross. In fact, the details given here is they're they're afar off. They're viewing what's going on from a distance. And it also, we see here the details mentioned, it says that these grieving women witnessed Jesus' burial. Now that's going to be significant as you read on, but uh, we're not getting into that passage right now. But here we have a a group of women, they're viewing... (laughs) And it's interesting, where are the 12 disciples? Where are the 12 disciples at this? These women are a bit different from the 12 disciples because unlike the 12 disciples, which one of them is already dead, they did not vanish from the scene. But neither were they close by to give testimony to their love and their support for Jesus. So maybe there was some fear going on here. Just as Peter wanted to see Jesus from afar. He didn't, he didn't want to be too close lest he... He's associated with him. But according to verse 43, it was Joseph of Arimathea who took the initiative in securing Jesus' body for burial. And you see some interesting details here about this man, Joseph. Uh, I've given you a picture of a reenactment here of of Joseph and some other people. Because there was probably not just Joseph carrying Jesus' body and going and burying it. That would have been very difficult for one man to do. So there's probably other people that are doing it. But anyway, Mark describes Joseph here as a respected member of the council. (laughs) Now that's an interesting detail. This means that he was actually a member of the very council that condemned Jesus for blasphemy. He was a part of that group. Mark also describes him as one who is looking for the kingdom of God. That's also very interesting, because this phrase is identifying him not just as a curious bystander or a sympathizer, but probably this man, if he wasn't at this time, eventually became a Christian. And so it probably partly explains his motivation for claiming the body. He's looking for the kingdom. So apparently he believes that Jesus is the Messiah, the one who is going to bring in the kingdom. Now, risk was involved in claiming Jesus' body, which is why if you look at verse 43, verse 43 says that he took courage and went to Pilate. (laughs) Why would it say that? Why would it take courage to go and see the Roman ruler Pilate and ask for a corpse? You see, it didn't bother the, the Romans to leave the victims on the cross for a long period of time. As far as they were concerned, they were quite happy for the crows to come and eat the body as it hung on the cross. The longer it was there, the better as far as they're concerned. So it's going to take courage for someone to go get it because the Romans were happy to leave it there. They like using the corpses to feed the birds. Therefore, for somebody to go and, and ask for the body of someone who is, who is executed for high treason, well, it's going to take courage because 
they could be looked upon as a sympathizer of the one who was executed. You, you understand what's going on here? But Joseph's probably pretty safe because he was a member of the council. <laughs> so Pilate's probably looking at Joseph thinking, okay, you're a member of the council. You're a part of this group who crucified him. You can't be a sympathizer. That's probably what Pilate's thinking. And so Joseph was probably above suspicion here. But Pilate's only concern was to make sure that Jesus was already dead. He didn't want him coming off the cross if he was still alive. So that's why he asked for the centurion to come, to verify that Jesus was already dead. The statement in verse 42, that it was already the evening of preparation, that is the, the day before the Sabbath, which, by the way, for the Jew, was mostly taking place on Saturday, uh, is, is helping to give some motivation here behind Joseph's action. You know, if you understand anything about the Jews, uh, the Old Testament Israelites, the, the body uh, w- wasn't supposed to hang through the Sabbath. Because, they number one, they believed that a hanging body on, on a tree w- was a curse. And number two, if it hangs up there through the Sabbath, they believed that that would bring a curse upon their land. And so Joseph maybe is thinking of that. I don't know for sure, but uh, so he goes. He's, he's doing it the preparation day, the day before the Sabbath. He doesn't want Jesus' body hanging up there on the Sabbath day. So he goes and, and buries, or buries Jesus' body. Now Mark says that Joseph presumably had some help from the servants here. And he wraps Jesus' body up in this newly bought linen, looks after him and gives him spices and and it buries him in a tomb, as it says here, carved in the rock. You say, well, that's all a very interesting story, but uh, th- does that have any significance for me? The answer, short answer is yes, it has great significance for you. This story has great significance for every single one of us, because the cross is central to the gospel. There is no resurrection without the cross. <laughs> There is no conquering of sin and death without the cross. There is no forgiveness of sin without the cross. But what does the cross of Christ reveal? What does the cross of Christ reveal? That's a question I I got up here on the screen for you, okay? Let's just think about this for a few moments and then we'll be done, okay? What does the cross of Christ reveal? Number one, the cross reveals God's incredible power. The cross reveals God's incredible power. God's power takes the mockery that was directed at Jesus and turns it into the proclamation of the gospel. (laughs) Now, it's interesting, the the statements these guys made, I hope you took note of them. These unbelievers who were mocking Jesus made some very profound statements. Number one, look at the, there's one here. Uh, One of the mockers said, he, referring to Jesus, Jesus saved others, but he can't save himself. That's an interesting statement, because it's true. He did save others. He was in the process of saving others, but he wasn't about to come down and save himself. He knew the mission for him was to die. He wasn't about to save himself. But we see here that God's power absorbs the poison of human sin and, and turns it into salvation for all who put their trust in Christ. Who would believe, who would believe, this is an amazing thing, who would believe that such a horrifying death that Jesus had could bring blessing to the world? Only God can take something so horrifying and so terrible and so bad 
and turn it into the greatest blessing that you and I could ever experience. Number two, what does the cross reveal? The cross reveals God's incredible love, not just his power, but, but his love. We, we, we truly see who God is when we see the Son of God crying out from the cross and he's offering forgiveness. It's an amazing thought that Jesus, in another gospel, that Jesus would even would say, Father, forgive them. Even the ones who crucified him, even the ones who put the nails through his wrist and his feet and put the crown of thorns on his head. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. What greater love could, could we possibly know than this? Number three, the cross reveals that things are never what they seem in our world. <laughs> they are never what they seem in our world. Just th- I, I, somebody sent me a link to, uh, if you can find it on YouTube, that Sunday is coming. That was the whole point about it. It talks about all these bad things, but the guy, whoever this preacher was, kept saying, but Sunday is coming. Sunday is coming. Sunday is coming. <laughs> but who would have known, except those who knew what Jesus was doing on Friday, who would have known that all those bad things that happened on Friday and Thursday would work for our good, would turn the world right side up. It may seem as God is, as if he's absent. You may feel as God is absent in your life at times. You might relate to that, that poem, that, you know, the footprints in the stand. Maybe you feel like God's absent. You're wondering, where, where's Jesus in my life? And you find out later in life that uh, Jesus was actually carrying you. That's why there's only one, one set of footprints in the sand. That, and that's the way it is sometimes. Sometimes it seems as if the high priest have won. They've gotten the victory. It seems as if Jesus is dead and buried and, and there's no hope, you know, life's done. But in reality, the, I'll remind you, these corrupt leaders failed. They did not accomplish their purpose. God did. Jesus did not stay dead and buried, and they could do nothing to stop the power of God unleashed by his resurrection. They couldn't stop the church either, by the way. Read the book of Acts. (laughs) They unleashed a power that was even greater than Jesus. Jesus said, there is one coming after me greater than me, and it was the Holy Spirit, the one who established the church, who empowers the church, They could not stop it. And so the reality is God remained in control. He still remains in control, and he accomplishes his purposes. And so the cross reveals things are never what they seem. Your life might seem bad at times. I'll remind you that God is sovereign. He reigns supreme over all his creation. Number four, the cross reveals that God's love and power can win those who might never have dreamed would respond Think about some of the ones who responded to Jesus here. For example, the actions of the centurion. Who could imagine that a centurion, a a leader in the Roman Empire, would ever make a statement, this is the Son of God? Oh, we're we're, we're like this, aren't we? We, we, Sometimes we think that, you know, that, that person is beyond the gospel. That person is beyond God's power. Some of you have unsaved spouses. Okay? Sometimes you might think your, your spouse is beyond God's power. And, and, and all, some of you might, you've prayed for that spouse for so long, you, you might think, is there any hope? There is hope. 
Look what happened to the centurion. Look what happened to Joseph, a member of the council who condemned Jesus. These men were saved. You can never write off the enemy. Never write off a person. The power of the gospel is so great that even those who persecuted Christians and Jesus can be won to the faith. What a wonderful truth. Don't give up. Persevere. Number five, the cross reveals the pain of mankind's situation. Mankind's situation is so bad, it is so great, that God the Father had to send his son to take care of the greatest problem you and I have. Jesus took on our humanity. Not only that, Jesus didn't just take on our humanity, he absorbed all of the bitter suffering of the world. So when Jesus was cornered by evil, what did he do here? Now this is interesting. When he's cornered by evil, when he's in the most desperate situation of his life, he cries out to his heavenly father. Now that's a good example for us. I don't, I don't want to just treat Jesus as, as, a, as an example because he's far more than that. But, but he is a good example. We're, we're, we're to be conformed in his image. Sometimes our cries come when we see no indication whatsoever that God is on our side and when we feel that God is silent. You ever feel like that? You ever feel like, you know, your, your prayers, if you pray, sometimes you don't even feel like praying, but if you do pray, sometimes your, your, pray, your prayers may not even feel like they make it past the ceiling. You feel like God is silent, right? What should we do when we're overwhelmed by inconsolable grief? We should do what Jesus did. What should we do when we feel completely forsaken? We should do what Jesus did. Oh, yes, defeat. <laughs> defeat may tempt you to give up faith in God, but Jesus' cry on the cross is, is encouraging because it reveals a faith that will not let go of God even when life hurts. I love Jerry Bridges' book, Trusting God Even When Life Hurts. If you've never read it, I suggest you do. What did Jesus do? Well, he made a lament. He quotes Psalm chapter 22, which is a lament. Now, the biblical lament begins with, uh, if you aren't familiar with biblical laments, like in the Psalms, they, they usually start out with a cry of distress. By the way, a large portion of the Psalms are laments. But they cry out with, with distress and a truthful expression of grievance against God. Some of the, the psalmists are just wondering, why? What, what's going on? What's happening to me? What's happening around me? And so the mourner there in, in Psalm 22 and other places outlines distress, expresses confusion, against the apparent triumph of enemies, and then urgently prays for relief. That, that's typically what happens in biblical laments. That, that's, and I suggest you use those for even your own prayers, as, as a guideline for your own prayers. The lament concludes, by the way, not just with bad news, but it concludes with good news. It trusts in God. It gives thanksgiving, a confidence that God has heard. But you know what? We, we Christians we tend to shy away from laments. We, we tend to think that, no, no, I can't, I can't do Psalm 22 or other laments. I, no, I can't pray like that. Because if I do, then, then, then uh, I, I, might, uh, I might get God's wrath or his alienation. You know, it, it might come across like I'm too complaining. Oh, really? <laughs> By the way, this shyness may in fact reflect a, a, a sense of distance and alienation from God. If you feel like 
you might be complaining too much against God by praying like psalmists often do. Well, it's revealing something about your relationship with God. And maybe you fear that God might reject you if you complain too much. Uh, you know, when you're overcome by evil and, and, and pain, what do you do? Who else do you turn to? The cry of despair to God is, is a wonderful sign of great intimacy with God, and it actually shows a strong faith, not a weak one. Well, the last point is this, that the cross reveals a new way of life. The cross reveals a new way of life. Those who taunted Jesus assumed that anyone with power would use that power for their own purposes to save themselves, didn't they? In fact, they said it. Oh, he, he's crying out to Elijah. Because many people thought Elijah, you know, he's that great prophet, and uh, you know, he, he's the one we can turn to to save us. Well, what did the disciples do? <laughs> the disciples heeded the call to save themselves when they fled into the night. Remember Judas betrayed Jesus with a kiss? What did the disciples do? Did they stick with Jesus? No. <laughs> Peter heeded the call when he denied Jesus three times. The high priest heeded the call when, when he moved to eliminate Jesus. Jesus was a threat to their power and their money. Let's eliminate him. Pilate heeded the call when he refused to take a stand for justice. He knew that Jesus was innocent, and he even washed his hands, symbolically saying, this man's innocent, the blood's on your hands. So he heeded the call of self-preservation, didn't he? But that's not Jesus' way, is it? In fact, Jesus lives out his teaching here before us. What did Jesus teach? Jesus said, the one who tries to save his life will lose it. But the one who loses his life will save it. That was Jesus' teaching. That was Jesus' way. He realized, I, he said, my way is to lose my life, Jesus said. In the process, I'm going to save it. By the way, that's the way it is for us, my friend. May I remind you, I hope this is a reminder, that you can't save your life. You can't save your life in this life, nor the next one to come. You can't save your life in eternity. You can't save your soul. You can't save yourself now. Your only hope is to give your life up because you can't save your life. And so we have to give our lives to Jesus Christ because he's the only one who can save us. So my friend, what are you trusting in? What are you trusting in? Are you trusting in yourself? Are you trusting in yourself to save you? Thinking, hey, I'm going to save myself because I don't want to lose it. You know, I don't want to lose my bank account and my retirement and my children and my grandchildren and my house and, you know, your list. I don't, I don't want to lose these things, so I'm going to do everything in my own power to save it. Jesus says, if you try that, you're going to lose it. In fact, Jesus says, what does it profit a man if you gain the whole world and lose your own soul? The rhetorical answer, or the answer to the rhetorical question is, it doesn't profit you anything. So my friend, don't try to save something you can't save. You can't save your soul. You can't save your life. Your only hope is to look to the one who took your place on the cross and died in your place and bore your sin so that when God the Father looks at you, he doesn't see Scott Silsby's sin. He sees Jesus Christ's righteousness. So not only did Jesus Christ take my place, not only did he take my sin, but he gives me his righteousness. Because good people don't get to heaven. Only righteous people get to heaven. 
Only the ones who are as righteous as Christ get to heaven. You have to have his righteousness. Do you? Do you have Christ's righteousness imputed to you? Has he bore your sins? If he did, (laughs) then you've given up your life. It's in his hands. And it's the safest hands, as John chapter 10 says. When you're in God's hands, no man or nothing can pluck you out of his hands. It's the safest place to be. But if you put your life in your own hands, you're hopeless. You're doomed. Don't go there. I beg you. I beg you. If you if you've never put your faith in Christ alone, please come and talk to me or somebody else. I'm sure there's someone else here who could show you from the Bible how you can know that when you die, you will immediately be in the presence of Jesus Christ. It's possible to know that. It's not pride. It's confidence in Jesus. Let's pray.